Science Talk will begin after this short message. Hey everyone, it's Brian Stallard and Andrea Alfano again from Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. We host a podcast called Base Pairs, the podcast about the power of genetic information. And most episodes start with a big topical issue. We've talked about cancer, climate change, immunotherapy, eugenics, GMOs, and even the pharmaceutical industry, to name a few. Our mission is to show that genetic information can affect a lot of very big, important aspects of our lives. That's why it's so unusual that our latest episode starts with a much more specific subject. And in fact, it's really a story. Right, the story of how a serial killer was brought to justice and the questions it raises about who has access to personal genetic information. More on that in a bit. In the meantime, enjoy Science Talk. Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on September 30th, 2018. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... A good way to change the drag is to change the spherical symmetry. You know, basically, a rounder ball is going to be able to have less drag and therefore travel further. So my thought was that the seams are basically the weak point. That's Meredith Wills. She has a doctorate in astrophysics and has authored studies that appeared in the Astrophysical Journal and in the journal Solar Physics. More recently, she's been studying the game of baseball as a sports data scientist. On September 19th, she published an article in the online publication The Athletic about her studies of the baseball itself in an attempt to figure out why home runs have gone through the roof, figuratively, from 4,186 home runs in 2014 to 6,105 in 2017. I spoke with Wills by phone. Home runs are significantly up in Major League Baseball, and uh, a lot of actual scientists have been trying to figure out what's going on there. So what was it that you were looking for, and what did you find out? Well, um, I guess I should point out that this was a question that in 2017, when it was going on, uh, a lot of people were approaching from a lot of different ways. Uh, some people thought it might be the baseball. Some people thought it might have to do with something called launch angle, um, just the angle at which the ball is coming off the bat and that there were players who seemed to be altering it. And so therefore you might get more home runs. Uh, there were a lot of different approaches and ultimately uh, MLB commissioned uh, a home run committee, uh, which as you say, were uh, the chair is Dr. Alan Nathan, who is a professor emeritus of physics at Illinois. Uh, they had engineers, they had mathematicians, they had, you know, it was a very STEM heavy uh, committee. And um, they went through and they did uh, a lot of lab testing and simulations and comparison of data. And what they found was that there seemed to be one statistically significant change, which was basically that the baseball itself, starting during 2015, but definitely after 2015, had less aerodynamic drag. Uh, what they did not find was why they had less aerodynamic drag. Uh, clearly, the change was the baseball, but the committee itself didn't find a difference in the baseball. 
Uh, I had been doing my own research thinking, okay, this might have something to do with the baseball. And it turns out there's good precedent for that because when changes have been made to the baseball in the past, it actually has changed how the ball moves. Uh, the best example of that would be um, the transition from what's called the dead ball era to the live ball era. You have different eras in baseball. Uh, actually corresponded to the change in the source of the wool that was used for the yarn inside the baseball. The inside of a baseball is largely yarn wrapped around a core. And before, during the dead ball era, all of the yarn was from American sheep, but because of World War I, we ran out of wool and we couldn't make baseballs using American wool. So we started importing it from Australia. The Australian yarn turned out to behave differently and suddenly you get what's called the live ball era and people hitting home runs and Babe Ruth and that sort of thing. So the, the actual ball was different because of the wool being different. American baseballs had Australian wool in them? Absolutely. This is sacrilege. Um, well, you know, they do, first of all, they do play baseball in Australia. So there are Australians out there who might take issue, but, um, quite good baseball, in fact. So back to the ball, um, I thought, okay, maybe there's something different about the interior of the ball that was having a similar effect. And so what I did was I very, very systematically took apart, um, two samples of baseballs, one that I knew was from 2014 and another set that I knew was from 2016 and 2017. Uh, Alan Nathan, back to him, had already established that the change had occurred over 2015. So I could treat 2016 and 17 as a single sample set. And um, this was literally me unlacing the red laces on the baseball and I measured you know, all sorts of different things, uh, circumference and mass and, uh, you know, different factors on the leather, different factors on the, uh, the yarn inside. And there's three different kinds of yarn. Uh, I ended up with 16 independent variables. And I love how science works because this was literally an accidental variable. My 16th variable, I didn't even think of until I started doing a different measurement and realized, hey, this looks wrong, um, had to do with the thickness of the laces. And I thought, okay, the thickness looks different between the two populations. Um, and again, it just had to do with the way I was doing a particular measurement. And so I went in and I measured the thickness. And there's a way you can do it where you just, you know, basically wrap the thread around a dowel and uh, you can figure out how many what's called wraps per inch, or in this case, I use centimeters because it, it's so thin. Um, and I found a statistically significant difference in the thickness of the laces between 2014 and 2016 and 17. It's 9%. And it was a noticeably statistically significant difference. They're thicker now. So they're 9% thicker now than they were before 2015. And so this turned out to be a really big deal because the only thing that the home run committee had found was that the difference was the ball, but they couldn't figure out what was different about the ball. And in fact, the, their particular study got published about three days after I found this result. 
So I spent a couple of days sort of, you know, metaphorically jumping up and down and saying, I know the answer. I know the answer. <laughs> and um, ended up getting, you know, this written up as an article for The Athletic and published two weeks later saying, here's what the difference actually is with the ball. There really is one. Now, for most people, it seems like thicker laces shouldn't make the ball have less drag because they tend to think that the laces are the same thing as the seams and thicker laces, they would think gives you higher seams, which should give you more drag, not less. Um, that's actually a fallacy. It turns out that lace thickness and seam height are two different things. Uh, I postulated that having thicker laces because they have greater tensile strength, they might actually be somehow keeping the ball more spherical than if the laces were thinner. Uh, and so I did a follow-up study where instead of using all the baseballs that I had taken apart, because obviously I, you know, you can have your cake or you can eat it basically. <laughs> and so I got a new set of baseballs, uh, one of which was again, pre 2015. Uh, the other was post 2015. It was a larger sample set. And I, uh, hypothesized that if there was an aberration in the spherical symmetry of the ball, because a good way to change the drag is to change the spherical symmetry. You know, basically, a rounder ball is going to be able to have less drag and therefore travel further. So my thought was that the seams are basically the weak point. If you're going to have any deviation from spherical symmetry, it's probably going to be near the seams. And on top of that, I thought that, okay, thicker laces are more likely to give you seams that stay more intact. Therefore, you could get a more spherical ball. So just taking essentially a set of calipers, uh, I looked at what I called an average diameter, which was essentially points on the ball and, and the same points on every one of my baseballs uh, away from the seams. And then I also looked at diameters, what I called adjacent to the seams. So not, not the seams themselves, because they're too high, but like, say, two millimeters off. And there's a couple places on the ball where you can measure the diameter and you get, you know, seam, a seam adjacent on both sides. Uh, and what I discovered was that for all, I had 20 balls from before 2015. And what I discovered was that for all 20 of those baseballs, they were bulging at the seams. That seam adjacent diameter was larger than the average diameter. Every single baseball from pre-2015, all of which have thinner laces. When you look at the newer baseballs, which have thicker laces, two thirds of them did show some bulging near the seams, but not nearly as much. And a third of them actually showed you know, essentially unbulging, as it were. It was actually narrower near the seams. So there wasn't anything systematic in the newer balls. And so what it looks like to me is that, yeah, the issue is the seams and the thicker laces are somehow keeping the seams more intact. Therefore, the ball is more spherical and therefore you have less drag. Therefore, you have more home runs. So it is the laces. Uh, you have a unique background to do this work. You are, you have a doctorate in astrophysics. You do, you do statistical analytics on baseball. 
And you're also a, an enthusiastic knitter. And so you tweeted when you uh, published this in The Athletic the other day, you tweeted, I just realized that reaching this conclusion required a detailed knowledge of physics, baseball, and fiber arts. Who would have thought those skill sets would ever come together? I was, I, I will admit that thinking about it, I was pretty surprised. Um, part of, part of the detailed knowledge of fiber arts, uh, comes from the fact that by knowing how different, um, different fibers, say cotton, wool, that's what I mean by different fibers, you know, polyester counts, I guess, although we're not discussing that here, um, I know how they react under different conditions because I do a lot of knitting. I do knitting design. I've done um, costume design. So I've worked, you know, when I say fiber arts, I mean all sorts of different things. Basically, if it involves needles and thread and fabric I've, or yarn, I've done it. Um, and cotton reacts in a very particular way when it gets wet, which a lot of people, particularly because we have dryers nowadays, don't think about. Um, but if you have wet cotton and you distort it somehow, and then you let it air dry, it actually will retain its shape. So we've all had the experience, or most of us have had the experience where let's say you spill coffee on your shirt during the day and you obviously don't want the coffee stain to stay there. So, um, you go into the bathroom and you scrub out your t-shirt in the sink and the divot stays there. You know, until you actually take off the shirt and wash it, you've, you've got a divot there for the rest of the day. The reason the divot stays there is because you've distorted the cotton and then you're allowed it to air dry. And it takes throwing it back in the dryer to get rid of the divot. The way that the baseballs are made, the leather itself, and it makes sense because obviously the leather has to, you know, conform to the ball. It's It's got to get round, gets moistened. And then they pull the red laces, which happen to be made of cotton, through the wet leather. So you end up with wet cotton laces. Um, what they then do, and obviously they're pulled super tight. <laughs> you know, if you've ever tried to pull the laces out of a baseball or even just tried to pull them up with your fingernail, they're incredibly tight. Um, on top of that, there is actually a pressure process that goes into um, once the balls are done to try to flatten the seams. So first you have them pulled tight, then you have those seams put under pressure while they're wet, and then you allow them to dry, all of which is effectively going to stretch out the cotton. And for thinner laces, that cotton is going to stretch more, which means you're going to have a weaker seam that's more likely to bulge. So that's where the fiber arts knowledge comes into play. I'm pretty sure, let's put it this way, the home run committee would probably have eventually figured out that the distortion was the seams. The fact that I had the knowledge of what cotton would do under those circumstances meant that I was able to get to the conclusion much faster. That's great. Um, I just want to let people know uh, the, the names of some of your other publications from earlier in your career Statistical study of coronal mass ejections with and without distinct low coronal signatures. That's a good example. Um, let me find another one here. There's 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 a few on something called EIT waves, which are basically these large scale propagating fronts 
within the corona uh, that I uh, that was sort of my specialty, but they were named after a particular instrument. I think uh, one of the t- early terms that was used for them was uh, solar tsunamis, although I believe that's now used for something else. So if you've heard the term solar tsunami, uh, that would be what were originally referred to as solar tsunamis were those. And so I did a lot of the initial work on that um, uh, was the first one, for example, to come up with an automated detection method for actually tracking these events because they're they're um, they're very dim. They're uh, the signal to noise is terrible, and for a long time people would only track them by eye because they thought there was no way that you could deal with the signal to noise such that you could actually track the front using your computer, and um, and I did it. And so that was kind of, you know, one of my big contributions within solar physics. Uh, that also turns out to have carried over well into baseball because now everything is tracking. You know, you're, you're tracking the pitch. You're tracking the ball when it's hit. Now we're actually tracking the players, which I think is really awesome. <laughs> and that is much more like what I used to do. So I'm particularly interested in player tracking um, partly because uh, it's similar and it's a, it's a complex problem, which I like, but also because I'm a total defense geek. <laughs> and so it means that they come together, which was kind of fun. So player tracking, you're talking about things like route efficiencies? Route efficiencies would be one or uh, tracking to see, for instance, uh, uh, a jump when a guy uh, steals a base, you know, what his jump is like. Player tracking is actually one that is still kind of nascent because like route efficiency is a, a useful one in, in a way, but it's not as useful as people think. Route efficiency is really cool if you have to sprint a really long distance to get the ball. Um, on the other hand, if you're playing a normal fly ball, say, having the most efficient route isn't necessarily a good idea because you won't be set up, say, to throw the ball to second base to cut off the runner on first. So there are there's a lot more subtlety to it. Um, one of the things that you can pull out of uh, player tracking, which, you know, again, it's nascent, it's still being done, are things like looking at how players set up for, uh, a, you know, set up for, say, that throw or set up for a cutoff man, or even things like um, getting multiplayer uh, kind of statistics. So how good if your first baseman is based on how good the people around him are. Is it that he happens to play the position really well defensively, or is it that you have a really, really good infield, meaning you can get away with having a first baseman who can't field the ball, or can't catch the ball, I should say. Um they're not giving him a lot of bad throws that he has to scoop out of the dirt. Right. And so you've got someone like, you know, I could throw out names like Todd Helton or Mark Teixeira or whatever people who were incredibly good first basemen who could, you know, do a, a half a split or a full split off the bag and feel the bad bounce, which meant you could surround them with people who, um, who aren't necessarily as good and they could compensate uh, you know, there's also, for instance, you can look at efficiency of uh, players running the bases or even just how a player, it depends on the type of hit, but how do they accelerate into first base? 
there are some guys where their jump is immediate. Uh, Ichiro Suzuki was like the perfect example of that. I could never figure out how he could be two steps out of the box when he hit the ball, but somehow he always seemed to do it. Um, or you have guys who are almost still ramping up their speed when they get to first, so they don't hit as many singles, but once they get going, it's easy for them to hit a double, if that makes sense, you know, because they're, they're not, they're not sprinters in the same way, but they absolutely can pick up their speed. Uh, or even just the route that you take around, you know, if you're running a straight line to first base, that's really useful for a single, but if you want to double, you want to come in at a curve because otherwise you're actually not taking the most efficient route to get to second base if you essentially put a right angle from first to second. So those are the kind of things that you would track looking at the players themselves. Right, and your uh, the, the name of that article that you published in 2008 was Tracking Large-Scale Propagating Coronal Wave Fronts parens EIT waves and parens using automated methods. And that has come back to actually be something that your background doing that is helpful now for doing these kinds of uh, tracking of players. It's really amazing. Yep. And, and it, it turns out that the data are less dissimilar than I would have expected, which is kind of fun. So it's, it's really cool to be able to take one thing and carry it over into another. We'll be right back after this. So, listener, what do you know about the Golden State Killer? I'm asking because this murder case had us thinking. It's Andrea and Brian again from Base Pairs, and we're excited about our latest episode, which takes a closer look at the peculiar arrest of California's infamous Golden State Killer. It wasn't eyewitness testimony that reopened this seemingly unsolvable cold case. Over decades of investigation, detectives never had such a lucky break. But a break in the case did finally arrive, thanks to the rising popularity of direct-to-consumer genetic testing services. We'll finish telling this tale a little later, so stay tuned. And now more with Meredith Wills. We've heard a lot, if you're a baseball fan, you've heard a lot about exit velocity and launch angle, and that players are trying to hit the ball up in the air more over the last few years. And so most people probably would have assumed that the launch angle had increased, but the actual analysis showed that there was no difference in average launch angle between 2014, 2016, and 17, when there was a big difference in home run rates. The important thing to realize is that the home run rates went up globally. You know, it wasn't just that you had a few players who suddenly went from hitting 30 home runs to hitting 55 home runs or something like that. What you had is you had guys who normally hit 10 home runs who were suddenly hitting 15 and everybody was doing it. So that's why the numbers went up like that, because there was some systematic change throughout the game. Uh, there are absolutely players who have changed the way they hit the ball and change their launch angle. Uh, a great example would be a, a couple years ago, Daniel Murphy, uh, when he was with the Mets uh, during the um, NLCS, and he hit, what, six home runs in, in the, the six games? Yeah, he hit a home and run every, every day. Uh, every every game against, against the Cubs, and it was just amazing. Um, I, I remember that specifically because the apparently the goat from the curse was named Murphy. 
And so I was like, okay, well, maybe it's not a goat curse. Maybe it's a Murphy curse. Uh, <laughs> you know. But anyway, the uh, um, the re at the time, everybody thought it was an aberration. But by the next year, he showed very clearly he had become a power hitter and then explained in interviews that before the postseason, he had actually started working on his swing mechanics to change his launch angle. The thing is, though, not everybody has done that. And even if they've tried, not everybody has been successful. I mean, there's some guys who can change their swing mechanics and there's some guys where changing their swing mechanics might just mess with their swing and they probably shouldn't. So in a way, looking at something like launch angle, you can see it with individual players, but to have a global change, it would require everybody suddenly deciding to do this and everybody doing it successfully. So I, I think um, that was, and again, it's, it's, it's a good thing to look into. Um, and the home run committee looked into all of this, actually. They, they, they had an incredibly, it's an 80 page report. It's very thorough. Um, it explains a lot and they look at pretty much everything that was postulated during 2017, as far as what, you know, they looked at, at, uh, essentially, you know, climate change is maybe having an effect with temperatures increasing and therefore the ball might travel further. Um, they looked at launch angle. They looked at, I think they actually looked at strategy. And when you took out all the variables, basically what they found was that the ball was traveling further for a given exit velocity and a given launch angle, the ball was traveling further regardless yeah, and there was an observed decrease in drag coefficient that they found as well. Yes. So when they removed all the rest of the variables, that was the only one that stood out as statistically significant. There were other changes, but not ones, only things that might show up as trends and nothing that showed up as meaningful. What they were looking for was something that was a genuine change. And that was the only statistically significant change was the drag. And that's what your stitches study tries to account for and may account for. Yeah. I, I, one thing I guess I should point out is with the, the, the newer, excuse me, with the older balls that are bulging at the seams, baseballs are all made by hand. And so there does tend to be a fair bit of variation from ball to ball. So I don't know if we will, it would take a huge population probably to find a statistically significant difference as far as that bulging effect. Um, so in my case, it's more that the trend is there and that the fact that all of the balls show bulging is telling, but for the newer results, it's not statistically significant. So, so please, you know, if, if, if you're, if you're really, really determined to hang your hat on it, that's that's yours. That's not mine. <laughs> you know. You are proposing a viable hypothesis with this study for the findings of the committee studying home run rates. That is an excellent way to put it. Okay, good. Uh, I just want people to know the report. It's called the report of the committee studying home run rates in Major League Baseball, and that's uh, uh, dated May twenty fourth, two thousand eighteen, and that's available free for nothing on the web and your 
article in The Athletic is titled Studying the Baseball to Find the How of the Home Run Surge. And The Athletic is by subscription. I am fortunate to be a subscriber. I should also point out there was a pre the previous article was published on June 6th. The title is something like how one tiny change in the baseball may have led to the home run surge and the rise in pitcher blisters, which is a whole different thing. Turns out thicker laces seem to be causing pitcher blisters. We can leave it at that. That's the next study. This was great. I, I just find this stuff endlessly fascinating as a science-interested person and a baseball fanatic. I just love all this it stuff. It is so nice to hear you say that you're a baseball fanatic. Having worked with scientists for so much of my life, there just aren't enough of us. There should be more. I'll be back in a moment. Hi, Andrea and Brian from Base Pairs here one last time. And that lucky break that led to an arrest in the Golden State Killer case? It wasn't exactly luck. Genetic testing has come a long way, and in some ways, law enforcement using it to their advantage was an inevitability. Tune into Base Pairs to hear from the founder of a service that helps fill the gaps in family trees, the same site that unknowingly helped track down the Golden State Killer. And then hear from a pioneer of genetic sequencing technology. He explains how we got to this point and what today's technology means for our personal privacy. His answers may surprise you. We'll wager you won't find these stories anywhere else. So check out Base Pairs, the podcast about the power of genetic information from Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. Find us on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can read and hear all about the Nobel Prizes in the Sciences that will be awarded October 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. And follow us on Twitter, where you get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 